Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Welcome to episode 32. In today's episode, I interview Amanda Spillari about the role social workers can pay in Parkinson's care. Amanda has a wealth of knowledge and experience working in a few different areas of social work and spent a large part of her career working with individuals who had Parkinson's. I'll let her share her story. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Amanda Spillari. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Amanda. How are you going? Thanks. We are in the midst of another lockdown for those of us or for those of the listeners who are listening internationally. We're in Melbourne, another stage three lockdown for us. We've been naughty. Yeah, it's hard. Hey, I've got two kids at home too. So I'm looking down the barrel of more homeschooling and social working in the office as well. The home office, I should say. Yeah, it's definitely, it's one of the most challenging things I think anyone's ever been through and to go through it collectively, um, it's just, it's thrown everything out the, the window. It's kind of thrown the rule book out the window. Mm, mm, absolutely. And I think it's really highlighting how we're sort of having to deal with lots of change. Um, yeah. So before we launch into, into our interview, do you want to give the listeners a bit of a background into your who you are and and what you're doing sure um so in terms of my social work career i've been a social worker for 19 years um i started in community development sort of social action um a kind of space mobilizing communities around kind of um gambling and and problem gambling in the community i then went to the uk um and in the uk I can't sort of stress to students enough to sort of do spread your wings with your degree and go overseas and and do that sort of stuff, but just had an absolute ball, but worked over there in um, disability, um, physical disability, um, aged care, that sort of stuff um, in the social services sort of setting um, in the community. Um, Then I returned to Australia and started working um, in chronic illness. And I think that really sort of flavoured the rest of my career. I, um, I worked for Parkinson's Victoria for, for many years um, and ended up sort of managing um, the client facing part of that service. So um, running the helpline, um, supporting people in lots of different ways, mobilising communities, um, working um, with disadvantaged groups within that population. Um, and then I did my Churchill Fellowship, which I'll probably talk a bit about later, but um, that looked at um, providing services and support and support for younger people diagnosed with Parkinson's, which are quite a marginalised part of that population. Uh, I then worked in oncology for a while and, and did sort of, again, working with community. Um, I did support group work, ran online face-to-face and telephone support groups um, and did a number of uh, different sort of focus focused things for people with different types of um, cancers, but also different experiences of cancer. So um, I did a group for parents with cancer. We did a group for Aboriginal people with cancer. We did groups for um, people uh, who uh, identified uh, as gay uh, with cancer. Um, And just, yeah, just a whole range of of different groups for different people who weren't sort of being serviced in mainstream communities, um, which was really rewarding. 
And then I went off and had a family of my own. So sort of had a bit of a break from social work for a little bit, which I think I kind of needed at that point in my life. Um, but I did, you know, me being me, I sort of <laughs> went away and did a little bit more sort of contracty stuff. So I did at that point did a little bit of um, started up my own business and did a bit of contract work. So writing, developing online modules um, for yeah, people like the Heart Foundation and the Children's Tumor Foundation and a few others. And again, working with the community. So, you know, working with people who are supporting others with chronic illnesses. Um, and then I sort of developed my own private practice as my girls got a bit older and um, started up a counselling business for people with Parkinson's um, who were going um, through an experience of diagnosis or progression. I also service people who've got Parkinson's plus syndromes. So um, that's people who are diagnosed with conditions like multiple systems atrophy, um, cortical, cortical basal degeneration, um, and uh, progressive supernuclear palsy. So they're all big mouthfuls to say. So we tend to use the acronyms a bit, but generally they're called the Parkinson's plus group of people. Um, and at that time too, I was providing uh, formal supervision for other social workers. So then I sort of got into working with RMIT and doing um, supervision with their groups too. So I do, so now in the main, I sort of work on, um, I do work for RMIT in terms of um, offsite supervision for students and liaison work. Uh, I do a bit of tutoring in an ethics subject and um, yeah, and, and mainly just my, my Parkinson's work, which I'm really passionate about um, and have been doing for many, many years. So that's um, the counselling, the support, the helping people through this really difficult time, uh, which is really important, I think, and it keeps me in touch with what's going on on the ground. That's this such an incredible journey, 19 years. That's amazing. And yeah. I mean... No one else can see the expression of you on your face but me, but you, you still talk about it with such passion. Like it's not a sort of grunt, like, oh, it'd be 19 years. Like there's, <laughs> there's still so much um, energy in the way you talk about your work and the ideas you have for the future that I, I wish people could see it on your face. Like it's, it's really nice to see. Thanks, Marie. I think it's really important to, to keep that flame going and to think about ways that we can sort of I guess advance the cause. So you've done I mean there's so much work that's adapted and, and kind of grown. A lot of our listeners are either students or early career social workers and it, it makes me think a lot you know some uh, quite a lot that I've known have been working in disability or personal care or um, residential care. It sounds like you've used some of that experience of your early disability work to help shape the kind of work you do once you've become qualified. Can you talk a bit about, I mean, I don't even know if my question makes sense, but how those skills are transferable and then paired with the social work yeah, framework. Sort of how you sort of get into like a speciality area, you mean? Or Yeah. And also, I mean, I know we've talked in the past about setting up private practice and, and mm. thinking about, you know, is it disability friendly? Can people get there from the train station? Is there a ramp? Can they access the bathroom? Like there are so many things that you see when you're a frontline worker mm. that you might not have considered had you not had that experience. Yeah, I think we live in a sort of able-bodied world, don't we? I think, you know, one of the things um, that's really tricky, you know, for my client group is just the, the physical barriers um, even to get into my office too. I'm sort of in an old Victorian terrace and trying to find something sort of in a city that had 
disabled toilets and like I said, access to public transport was central. Um, there's, there's so many barriers for people. Um, I think what's happening now with COVID and telehealth is probably a really good thing for people with disabilities. I'm able to actually deliver my sessions via video conferencing, which is for the first time is being funded um, via Medicare, which was never happening before. Um, so people would have to um, be 100 kilometres away in order to sort of access that part of the, the rebate. So now I can actually say, okay, so if someone's having a bad day, they can sort of, we can do the session from their home. They don't have all that stress of trying to get ready. And with Parkinson's, like your body doesn't move um, the way you want it to. So things slow down. Um, coordination of your muscles is difficult. Um, people often feel stiff and, uh, yeah, un uncomfortable. So being able to do it from home is, is really good. I can just hear my kids screaming. Could you hear that? <laughs> That's okay. We've had, we've had dogs bark, cats, everything. Just life. Mm. I think they're on the way out now. They said they're going at 9.30, so <laughs> <laughs> they're just to let the cleaners in. Oh, the joys of home of home stuff going on. See, a lot of people were... I don't know if I answered that question that you said before too because my speaker's died. Did you want me to answer that one? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so what was it again? It was about um, uh, how you get specialised in an area, wasn't it? Yeah, and how you kind of use your transferable knowledge from one maybe like a casual job into kind of your social work role. Okay, yeah, so I guess... Um, yeah, it's interesting how I sort of ended up in Parkinson's. It wasn't something that I definitely started out to do. Um, I think over the years, I sort of, you know, I think I was really open to having lots of different experiences in social work. Um, and it was funny because early on, I think, you know, after I'd finished my degree, I asked, I sent my resume to the, um, to the careers office and I said, can you look over this for me? And they said to put in there a career statement. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, what's that? And it's sort of like your goal really and you know what your goal is in terms of your career and where you want to end up and so I had put down to work with some of the more marginalized and disadvantaged groups and to be able to use my skills to service that area something really broad like that and I think it was a really good exercise to do because it made me think about you know well, well what do you want to do Amanda where do you want to end up you know do you want to be you know and I'd always thought I was you know very feminist based in my practice I uh, thought oh you know I want to work in a feminist organization domestic violence or you know those sorts of things and I never really ended up there I ended up um finding passion and um and doing lots of work to try and close the gap and and that sort of stuff in the work that I do for people with lots of different types of physical disabilities so I think it's really important to be broad in terms of your intention um, and look at ways that you can sort of bring in those passions into the work that you do. A lot of the, the, um, the guests on this podcast who've worked in similar areas, one thing I've noticed is, especially something like Parkinson's, for example, it doesn't discriminate. So you'll be working with children, adults, widows, widowers, parents, step families, family views, family violence, mental illness, like, any other thing you're interested in intersects with absolutely something yeah, like yeah. that. That's a really good point, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. You find your passion and you bring it into that space. And it's really just about, yeah, raising awareness and, and supporting people and having, I think, that broad understanding that no two um, people's journeys are the same. I think that, you know, um, and that ability to kind of sit with someone 
and, and listen to their story and be able to walk alongside them mm-hmm. um, through what they're experiencing and bring the types of supports that they're going to need um, at different times. I mean, some of the experiences are universal, like that experience of loss and grief and, and the things that happen. Um, being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness but um yeah i think it's yeah there are other things which um yeah are quite unique in terms of that stuff if and i'll i'll pick your brain because i know you know the learning plans of the university backwards like (laughs) me you know when we're looking at things like policy and research as well as that kind of client delivery can you talk a bit about how somebody can carve out some space in their job to do any of those things wow yeah so because they seem really separate like i think when we're learning about social work it seems like our policy is only in like a maybe local government policy department or i'm only doing research if i'm an ra for someone's phd like we have um very kind of distinct ideas of how those things look but often you can bring them in to almost any role yeah absolutely and i think it's critical really that we are Um, performing research around the great outcomes that we're having with our clients and that we're quantifying that stuff and um, and speaking the language especially when you're working chronic illness you need to speak the language of the medical community so if you're not encapsulating the amazing work that you do and presenting that at a conference or you know um, yeah um, getting it out in a journal or whatever they're not listening to the work that you're doing Um, so in some ways we've got to kind of speak their language which feels very um yeah um different to the types of you know qualitative stuff that we do normally um but i think it's really important even in terms of getting on the agenda for funding and um for those sorts of things we need to have evidence backing up what we're saying um so one of the first things that i do in in any job is to uh scope the scene and that's that suffering okay um with my client group what are the biggest issues for you and so you know putting out some um and and sometimes I would get a student on board to kind of do that for me or I would do it myself or whatever but it was a really great way to be able to frame um, up that sort of co-design and and making sure that I'm working from a perspective which is really hearing client voice Um, but also to help me defend my services when they want to axe things you know which often happens in um, not-for-profits oh yeah okay we're getting rid of this aspect now it's like hang on a sec this has been around for 20 years why are we why are we doing that so helping um, to advocate um, for your fund, you, the critical service that you're providing to continue to be funded. Um, also to, you know, having that sort of the research base and that action-based research, you've got um, then evidence that you can use for funding applications. So in one of my roles at Cancer Council, I was able to get um, secure $80,000 so that we could get an Aboriginal worker. And for the first time, we developed this um, a support group for Aboriginal people, run by Aboriginal people, um, to go through their experience of cancer using sort of narrative therapies, um, digital um, storytelling and and those sorts of interventions which were culturally specific. Um, So that sort of stuff just wasn't on the agenda before that. Um, You know, so I think it's really important for change and it's also important to secure, you know, stability of your service. So we always need to embed um, research policy in terms of you know getting on funding agendas and and those sorts of changes um into the work that we do and it feels abstract when you when you sort of a student on placement or you know i just want to work with people i want to help people or whatever but we need to think about that meso and and macro level as well so it sounds like the role was incredibly broad and was that how it was designed or 
I mean, how did you hone it in when you were working in Parkinson's care? Like what was the scope of your role? How did you define that? And, or how did you challenge it if it was already defined quite strictly? Uh, I guess in, in that setting, when I was working, um, you know, working for a very small not-for-profit, so I was the only social worker. Um, so so servicing how many people? Yeah, that's right. There was me and one other person. Oh, my. Um, and then, you know, and obviously, you know, admin staff and whatever, but, um, yeah, so we sort of grew then. So then it was, oh, I apologise, let me close that. <laughs> you did say to close that, so... Why that's still digging? That's right. We'll talk over it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess you know, yeah, with with that role, I started very very small, and um, and we grew, you know, and it was that stuff around advocating for need that you know we actually we need another social worker, we need a nurse, we need you know these different professions to help support this experience of Parkinson's disease. That Parkinson's is not just about. Uh, yeah, you know, um, providing funding for research that people need support to live with the condition too. And that we actually need skilled experts to be able to deliver this support. Um, having said that, I, I worked with an amazing and extensive uh, volunteer network who ran support groups. So I would sort of train people to run groups and they would sort of do them in their communities all across Victoria. So that was a really um, rewarding and, and amazing experience. And most of them had had an experience of Parkinson's in their family um, in some way. And many of them sort of helped us with our advocacy with the media and, and getting things on the political agenda as well. Um, so, you know, although there's still a lot to be done, Parkinson's is such um, a poorly understood illness. So uh, I think there's still lots of work in that area that, that needs to be done. And I'm th I mean, thinking about it from a um, family systems kind of perspective, you can see the impact on, on spouses, on children, on that person's own identity, on their sense of self, on, you know, there's loss and grief mm. of mobility of, um, you know, side effects of medication. Like there's so many things to consider. So I really like what you said earlier about when you start somewhere, you scope it out. Mm. And you do a bit of investigating as to almost like a needs assessment, you know, like you would do if you were launching a product, you do your product research or your, you know, market research to say, who are my clients? Who am I serving? What do they need? Yeah, absolutely. I remember in one job I was in, they said to me, um, okay, we want you to start all these online training tools and da, 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 and, and had this agenda, right? And I said, okay. And I knew that I was working with volunteers who were a lot older. Um, not to say that older people aren't great at online stuff because, you know, they're, I've worked with um, people who are in their 80s who are amazing and better than me. But, you know, um, I just had a bit of a, a gut in feeling that this wasn't going to fly. <laughs> and so I did a bit of research and found out, guess what? They wanted face-to-face. -face. So, you know, and then I had the evidence actually go back to management and say, well, look, I think this is a brilliant idea. I just don't think it's going to suit our group of learners here. So I think it's really important to be able to have those conversations and back up what you're saying when you, when you do need to stand up to a, a policy decision that probably doesn't really suit the needs of, of your group. Um, but just, yeah, I guess going back to what you were saying about some of the loss and grief issues, I think they're huge, um, the people with Parkinson's face. I think, you know, the, the losses are cumulative. So, you know, there's changes to the relationship, um, the roles within that relationship and the roles in the family. 
um, you know, your in changes to your independence and, you know, even things like not being able to drive anymore. I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest ones I reckon that affects people. Um, so that loss of your freedom of movement, which is a basic kind of human right and having to rely on others and just your sense of security about the future, you know, like, um, you know, I'm working with people my age who, who were, who were affected and just to think, you know, oh, one day I'll retire and I'll do this and I'll go and travel and I'll whatever. Um, all of that is changed and it becomes a very scary looking kind of future when you sort of delve into it um, for some people. So it's working with people to sort of change that notion of what, um, how we find meaning in the midst of lots of grief. Mm. Well, that's been the the new stage of grief that's been added on the six stages, meaning. Mm, hope, yeah, hope and meaning, yeah. And I think, it, yeah, it's, it's the antidote, isn't it? And I think one of my clients actually said it to me in a really lovely way. He said, you know, he said, grief is the way through this. The challenge is not to get lost in it. You know, so you've got to grieve. You've got to, you can't bypass that, that whole experience. But it's, yeah, how do you, how do you stop from going under um, in that process? So tell me about the Churchill Fellowship. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, an, um, I'm also an advocate for the Churchill Fellowship. So anybody that would like to sort of go and do this, <laughs> although with COVID, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to pan out for now. They're, they're all on hold, I guess. So the Churchill Fellowship is a, is a group, um, it's a group of funding for, for people in the community that are doing something innovative in lots of different sectors. So across the arts, across uh, health, across all different types of um of you know um, of project areas and it's really about funding um, research ideas that probably wouldn't be funded otherwise and going across into different countries to learn about how they do them there and the church of fellowships been around for years and years and um, was is sort of like a, you know a, this funding that's produced every year for people to go and do these traveling fellowships and they're assessed on their merit so mine was looking at developing a support network for young people diagnosed with Parkinson's. So I went over to the US and met with the Michael J. Fox Foundation and a number of young onset groups that were operating there, the American Parkinson's Disease Society, a whole range of people. And then I went to the UK and, and uh, spoke with the Parkinson's UK Foundation, spoke with an amazing author, um, Tom Isaacs, who has actually unfortunately passed away now, but he started up the Cure Foundation's Parkinson's Trust and just a huge advocate um, for finding a cure um, and yeah and sort of interviewed him about his perspective and what's important for younger people in terms of finding meaning and, and working through this stuff so um, so basically yeah so did so did lots of qualitative interviews and combine that into a report so if you're interested in reading my report you can sort of just google Churchill Fellowship Amanda Spilari and it'll come up um, and sort of and there's some lovely photos too of the beautiful people that I met but um, but yeah, I think, you know, if you've got a, an idea when you're sort of out in, in the sector that needs, you know, that you need to sort of research and do, and there's nothing out there about that subject, um, this is a really good way to get some awareness around it. And so what came out of that was that, um, so some of my recommendations were about, you know, obviously funding a young onset network because it's needed. Um, unfortunately, that hasn't happened yet, but what did come, come of it was that um, there's now a biannual, um, young onset conference that happens in Australia where young people get together um, and they also share knowledge from the experts and but I mean one of the other important things was 
that came out of it was that it's important to have information and understand the illness, but it's also important to connect with others. That young people need to be able to talk to other young people. They need to have fun. They need to connect, you know, and I think that was one of the most important lessons that came out of it was that, you know, as health professionals, we often think that all people need is education and information. Um, and I think I've been guilty of that in the past a lot, especially in my younger years. So I just, you know, all right, I'm putting together a package of information, just throw in a thousand things and just overload people. And I think now less is more. And it's more about how we give people that opportunity to connect with like a mentor or, or someone who's going through a similar sort of experience. I mean, we do it with things like, you know, mother's groups and things like that. Um, you know, you can talk to your child maternal health nurse and that's great, but sometimes it's just better to speak to another mum. Um, and, and talk to them about, you know, how hard it is um, and they can fully understand. So but creating connections for people with Parkinson's in that way was a really important lesson that came from that too. And I think organisations need to be careful to always keep in mind um, that connection um, and that we're facilitators of that, especially as social workers. Mm. Working with young people, I'd be curious to hear your um, ideas of this, but I've, I've found in my experience in disability, people, parents and carers find it really hard to allow some dignity of risk. And if, you know, teenagers, adolescents, young adults do risky things, not always extremely risky, but I feel like there's maybe not as much freedom allowed to make mistakes or to make bad choices, even if it's just like, oh, no, you can't have a fried chicken burger. It doesn't sit with your medication. Well, it's like, so like, mm -hmm. how, how did you find people balancing the dignity of risk and some of those kind of normal young adult milestones mm -hmm. while also living with a kind of degenerative and chronic illness? Yeah, it's hard. I guess, you know, the tendency is for carers, partners, family members to want to wrap that person up in cotton wool you know, I'll do that for you, you know, you know, so a lot of the education that I do is around sort of letting go of that and that it's actually really important for people to maintain their physical, you know, so one of the things that comes up a lot is, you know, I don't want to go in for a walk where she falls or things like that. And it's like, it's actually really important to keep your muscles healthy. If we don't use them, if we don't keep exercising, if we don't do that stuff, you lose um, your mobility much quicker. Um, and in fact, there's lots of research that looks at, into the role of exercise and that it's actually neuro, um, it has these functions in your brain which preserve it. So, you know, doing a bit of education, I think, is the role of the social worker there and sort of saying that, you know, it's really important that people have independence because one of the things that this, start, this condition does is it takes that away. So you don't want to double, you know, I guess confound that in a way. Um, so, it, it, yeah, so there is lots of family work that comes into it, I guess. And so I see individuals, but I see lots of families. Um, one of the things I get told all the time is that my partner doesn't understand. Okay, well, bring them along, you know, and let's have a chat about, about this openly and, and sort of get to the bottom of what's going on. What, what do you feel like um, they're not understanding about your experience? And it might be things like that. You know, if I say I'm going to wash a car, I want to go and do it. Don't come and stand over me and, you know, that sort of stuff. I think it's just having... Um, getting people to let go of some of, you know, partners to let go of their anxiety and, and put the trust out there and, and, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen if they have a fall, they have a fall, you know, um, and it's sort of reframing it a bit to allow that dignity and open up that space a bit. How do you balance? I mean, my observations have been that particularly in, in our culture, we don't handle grief very well. We don't talk about it. Um, very well we don't want to ask people difficult questions because we think it might upset them mm -hmm. is that something 
you find with either the family members or spouses of someone that they're too scared to ask their loved one you know, how they're feeling about their diagnosis or what this means for them or like they kind of yeah. avoid asking those difficult questions which can come across as not caring or not understanding in a way? I think sometimes um, they don't want to frighten the other person with what they're thinking about. Um, but exactly the same thing is happening at the other side. So, you know, um, especially with some of the Parkinson's plus hormones, like, um, you know, MSA and those sorts of things, especially when there's, you know, it might be young family, for example, like the person diagnosed is worried about what I'm going to do in the next, you know, what are my children going to do when I die? And um, the partner's thinking exactly the same thing, but they don't want to talk about it because they're scared they're going to scare each other. Um, you know, or I don't want to take you into a dark place or whatever, but the reality is that they're both thinking that stuff. And I think um, it's probably important to explore it because um, when it's sitting there inside your head, it, it gets, it's like a snowballing effect of worry. Um, so yeah, I think that sort of stuff goes on a bit. Um, and I think, yeah, we don't sit well with grief. Um, and you know, it's, it's so important to have, be able to create, and I think that's what the work that I do in private practice anyway allows people just to explore that grief. I'd say if I did, you know, choose a framework that I refer to the most in that setting, it's probably loss and grief work and just acknowledging um, that this is really hard and, and, and just, I guess, um, helping to sort of do that psychoeducation around, you know, the stuff that you're experiencing is grief. It's not a normal type of grief that you'd experience, say, for example, when someone dies, but it has that same feeling that being diagnosed with something like this feels like a death um, and it comes in waves. So sometimes you feel like you're great and you're on top of it and everything's fantastic. And then all of a sudden it just hits you mm. um, and something's triggered that, whether it's a, 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 sm a small loss or um, a change in your physical circumstances or um, a progression of illness or, or whatever that is, um, it's unique for that individual. So exploring that unique kind of experience of loss and grief is really important and to do as a couple and family as well because they're all grieving too mm. um, as well. And I think that's, that's something that is often overlooked. Like I know in the close to 10 years on and off that I was working in disability services, we never had any training or any mm. conversations as a peer group or as an organisation and various ones I worked in about the grief that comes along with some of those challenges, whether it's acquired brain injury, um, mm. loss of mobility due to stroke, or even someone born with um, various physical limitations. It was just around trying to keep that person um, you know, fed and clothed and sheltered. Like there wasn't a lot of conversation on how they felt in that journey, how to support their family, and, and I think that might, might have been a huge oversight. Like, yes, we want to advocate for the client, but bringing in their network and their friends and their family and whoever's important to them mm. is part of that advocacy. That's right. And above all else, you're a person, you're not a disability. And I think that's the thing, you know, um, a lot of people say to me when they're first diagnosed, oh, I'm going to have to stop work now or whatever. And I'm like, well, why would you stop work? You know, why would you do things that, that, that stop aiming to achieve the things in your life that you want to achieve? Yep, this is going to present challenges, but we'll deal with those as they arise. You know, I think, um, yeah, above all else, you're a person. And I think in society, we are so able focused um, that, you know, and we tend to, you know, I mean, even looking at the COVID crisis at the moment, disability has had a very silent voice in all of this, um, which has been really disappointing. 
Um, there's been no discussion about the impact that, um, you know, shutting down an entire city has had on people who rely on um, outside carers coming in to support them um, and, and all of those sorts of challenges. Um, and just, yeah, and what that means for people who don't have a formal NDIS type network, but rely on friends, families, neighbours coming in, all of that sort of stuff, that sort of stuff, there's just been no discussion about. Mm. Um, which are critical to, you know, that having that village around you to sort of keep going. Um, yeah. So we've, we've talked a lot about the various things that you've done working in that space. Are there any, is there anything we missed around what role social workers can play when working in the chronic illness space or with chronic illness? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, there was a question that you sort of asked me, I think about, um, yeah, what are the considerations or something? I think, yeah, and, and what role social work has to play. I think social work is essential um, in any kind of, you know, of course I want to say that because I'm a social worker and I think we're essential in every health setting. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't always, um, we're not as valued as some of the other medical professionals, but, you know, we're going to hustle for our worthiness a bit in there and sort of, you know, make ourselves essential, um, you know, because we are. And I think, you know, we provide that counselling that grief work, the group work stuff, the advocacy, um, and also some of the practical assistance stuff. I mean, we provide a lot of the work that I do is around helping people to develop a bit of a roadmap. You know, how am I going to tackle this illness? Uh, what are the things I need to put in place? So we do a lot of practical work. I do a lot of education. I think it's really important for, you know, for social workers starting out, if you're going to go and work in a specific area like MS or Parkinson's or cancer or whatever, you need to know your subject better. So get educated, learn about the medications, learn about the side effects, learn about all of that stuff, um, go to conferences. And before you know it, you become very, very specialised. And so a lot of the work that I do is just education about the illness itself too. Um, and doing many years on the helpline as well sort of really helped develop that, um, that expert knowledge too. But I think, you know, um, we, we're helping people navigate the system, which is the trickiest part. Um, if I had a dollar for every horrible experience, you know, my clients have had with their neurologists and, and just dealing with the system, unfortunately, I'd be a millionaire. Like, it's just, um, yeah, the system is difficult to navigate. Um, people have bad experiences and I think we need to advocate for them to make complaints and to change, um, you know, when you have an unplanned hospital, hospitalisation experience, often they, they turn out quite badly for people. So we need to advocate for change when those sorts of things happen. And we also need to advocate with agencies like the NDIS. So I had a client who had Parkinson's for 18 years. It was very physically um, affected and um, could barely make it to my sessions, you know, in Carlton. And, you know, we'd put in an application and got rejected. Um, and I'm like, and so he had taken that on face value. Okay, it's been rejected. There's nothing I can do. I'm like, hang on a second. Something is wrong here. Um, you are, of all the people that get NDIS packages, you are more than worthy of, of this kind of support. Um, we need to appeal this. And he, and then so we appealed it and he, and he got it straight away. So sometimes it's a bit about um, having that chat before you apply with someone that understands the system, getting, like, I'll, I'll write lots of support letters. Um, and I think you've got to package up that evidence and, and speak the language that the bureaucracy understands and the systems understand, unfortunately. And often it's very deficit-based. Um, and so I tell people that I'm going to write things which are a bit disempowering in your letter, but that's the language that the government use in order to um, allocate resource. Oh, that's the worst bit of writing those letters. Yeah. My heart breaks having to write them because you're, you know, you're, you're right. It's so deficit based. 
Yeah, it is. When I'm working with someone to say, you're going to be, you know, don't stop working. We're going to, you know, um, be as independent as possible and that sort of stuff. And then I have to write that they're um, a nursing home risk if they're not supported. That's against every bone in my body. Um, and especially against the strengths work because that's not strengths-based work. That's deficit-based stuff, you know. Mm. That's unfortunately the, the sort of um, that system stuff sort of creeping in. So you already mentioned probably several tools um, and resources for sort of early career social workers and graduates. Um, I really like your point about the understanding your subject matter. And I think people get scared when they first start, like you don't need to know it straight away. So if you graduate and you get a job in a sector, you'd be surprised how quickly that comes within it. Within well, a, yeah, you know, six to 12 months. You know what I mean? And I, like, I think, you know, I'm one of like, I think three people that do what I'm doing in the community. So if anyone's interested in doing this sort of work, I'd love to teach you. I think we need more social workers, counsellors, support people out there in the community doing this. But I think, um, yeah, I think the thing is, it's um, you develop an expert, a set of expertise, you know, and we do become very specialised in what we do, whether that's neurology, whether that's um, mental health, whether that's, you know, um, other aspects of social work practice. And I think the great thing about social work is that it's so varied. Mm. Um, you know, I've done so many different things in my career. I mean, one of my first jobs was a research assistant. So I was doing surveys over the phone, like um, back in the early 2000s, you know, like, um, you know, people would hang up or swear at me and things like that. That was a very interesting experience, but, you know, that, that was that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, again, I did emergency relief work and did locum work. And, and so there's, you can go anywhere with, with this degree. I, I really think you can explore your passions. If you're feeling burnt out or whatever, um, it's important to recognise those symptoms. Um, and if, if an organisation's values aren't suiting yours, I think it's really important to make sure that that matches. Um, in terms of what you want to achieve. So if you're feeling tension rise, there's a reason for that. Mm. So how are you addressing it? Are you getting good supervision? Um, that sort of stuff as well too. I'm so glad you bring that up because all of our, pretty much all of our guests have talked about the importance of supervision mm. and there's always a room for personal growth. But I'm also a big believer that sometimes the stressor is the structure of a particular workplace or organisation mm. and it can really make people feel um, disenfranchised or disheartened that sometimes the best thing you can do is to move jobs or move sectors sideways it yeah. might just be that you know whether it's some people just might never like shift work and they're working in a hospital where there's shift work or for some people the rigidity of nine to five that's like sometimes it's not a matter of better supervision sometimes it's like this just doesn't fit with either the stage of life that i'm in or who yeah. i am or how yeah. i how i want to move and be in the world right now i remember one job i was traveling an hour and 20 in the car the perk was i got a car with the job <laughs> three petrol so i was like whoa i'm taking this job and then i was traveling an hour 20 to get there and now 20 home every day and that in itself made me feel very dissatisfied with the job and what i ended up doing was i just sort of moved in a city and then you know resolved those issues and the the it just um the feeling that I got after taking 20 minutes to get to work versus an hour and 20 was just phenomenal. So I think you've got to work out the ways that you can look after yourself. But I also agree that, you know, different organisations will have different um, practice styles and, you know, you, you, and some of them aren't going to suit your philosophy. And I think when you interview, it's really important to interview for those different, um, to hear a bit about their values and hear a bit about their organisational culture 
hear about how they work in their teams, how they support each other. Mm. Um, you know, when I worked at Cancer Council, we would go into, um, so we had a little walking group at lunchtime. We'd chuck our runners under the desk and every lunchtime we'd go for a walk and we'd do walking meetings and things like that. So, um, and one of our, one of my colleagues was yoga instructor. So she, so once a week we'd do like mindful yoga at lunchtime. So there was all of these things that we could do to look after each other's self-care and that stuff really suits me. And then I've worked in other organisations where there's none of that. And so for me, that was really stifling. So I think it's really important to work out what's important for you because um, <clears throat> you're not going to always get everything that you want. So it's important that you ask for it. And, and if you're not getting it, like um, I think now is the only time I've ever had a social worker as my direct supervisor um, at RMIT. But before that, I wasn't, I'd, I'd never had that. I had nurses in charge of me and things like that. So we had a very different way of looking at the world. So what I actually did at interview was negotiate to have supervision costs covered um, in my positions. And I did that for the last 20 years. And I think that's what's kept me in the sector. That's what's kept me passionate because I've had someone that's holding my space. Yeah, I've done that too. Yeah. I can't recommend it enough. Oh, you, oh same. I just think yeah, otherwise you burn out. And I got to the point, I mean, maybe th that comes with a bit more experience, but I was like, if you're not prepared to do this, then I don't want to work for you. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and you know, or that they allow the time. For example, if they can't afford to pay for it, then you pay the $120 or whatever it is, but any claim it on tax, but they give you allocate that time that every, okay. Monday, every Monday, once a month, I'm going to go and do this and you're going to pay my time to do that. Yep. And do it at about three o'clock, finish at yeah. four early. Yeah, beautiful, you know, um, and I think that it's so important in terms of staying well, um, you know, because you'll feel, and I think students and, and new graduates, you'll feel these tensions arise. So when these tensions arise, what is that about? Is that about a value position? Is that about not feeling supported? Is that this about stressful, traumatic client work? Well, why am I feeling these tensions arise and these feelings of burnout? So mm -hmm. I think you've got to respond to them and unpack them. And I, I think people would be great, um, you know, to recognise these are all normal feelings. Mm. They don't all lead to burnout. So they're, they're, if these <laughs> yeah. things are coming for you, yeah. I mean, how can they not? We don't choose this line of work um, without having some care and compassion for other people mm. or a personal story or journey or interest. So there is that frustration. There is that sadness. There is, you know, mm a bit of compassion fatigue, all these things do come up for us because we're working with oh, people will. in some of their most vulnerable spaces. Mm. I think the other thing too, which I've probably yeah, I've been focusing on, you know, sort of not getting burnt out, but I think the thing is too, you also, I mean, some of my best friendships and the most amazing people I've met have been through this career. You know, I'm still friends with, um, really good friends with one of the women that I met who's a psychologist in, in one of the first places I worked. Um, and yeah, and, 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 you know, and I think, and my friends from overseas who I met, you know, working in social services in a statutory organization and you think, oh, statutory bodies, how stifling, but it was actually one of the funnest places I've ever worked. So, and that was because of the people that I worked with. So I think, you know, there's so many different, um, components of what adds to job satisfaction, mm. but I think we've got to really be careful about burnout because we're more vulnerable to it. And especially in the human services sector, it is something that occurs. Um, and when we go in at the beginning, we, we don't even sort of think about that stuff. We think it's going to be great. I'm going to be helping people. I'm going to change the world. And we and will, we, and we do. Yeah, and we do. And we do that, you know, um, in lots of different ways. Um, but sometimes you're going to, you're going to hit obstacles and that's the time when you need the support. So if there was, you know, you've kind of covered a lot of these um, ideas of tools and resources and recommendations, but if there was one kind of piece of advice that you could impart on the audience, what would it be? 
Oh, I thought a lot about this question, Marie, when you sort of sent it around, like, oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> funny, isn't it? It's one of the biggest reflective questions that we don't even sort of take some time out to think about. But I think the biggest thing for me, which I've learnt probably in the last 10 years, has been a bit around self-care. Um, to take it seriously. I think in the beginning, I used to like sort of do a lot of burning of the candle at both ends. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I think now just even just going to bed early um, and making sure that I'm, I start my day feeling refreshed and, and ready, um, but also grounding myself in a spiritual sense. And, um, you know, how do I commence my day and how do I close my day off uh, rather than rushing on to the next thing? And I mean, there've been things that have taken years to hone in on and they sound so simple oh yeah i'll just you know do a little meditation or whatever at the end of the day and it's funny how quickly that stuff drops off when you're busy so i think it's being committed to looking after your own self-care and um, your spirituality your physical health um, exercise has played a really important role for me over the years and doing sport and having a different hobby to what i do at work um, so which is completely different and that i love and you know being involved in sporting committees and things like that um, I think to the other thing that I wish I had known was that often, you know, our work is very unseen um, and that you'll never know the impact that you're going to have on someone often, and, you know, and not even until many years later. Like I was at a conference um, last year talking about, um, you know, it was a conference, one of Parkinson's Victoria's ones talking about, um, you know, supportive social work. And um, someone came up to me at the end of the conference and said, Amanda, you know, I saw you like four years ago and, you know, she said, I was, I was such a mess back then. And I just wanted you to know how much you impacted on me and just how good I am now. And it was just um, so beautiful to hear because we're, we're there for such a tiny little blip in someone's life. And, you know, you've got a lovely opportunity to connect and to make a difference. And I think that's the beautiful thing about social work. Yeah, I had an experience like that recently. Someone stopped me at the train station and because he had a face mask on. I was like, I don't know who this is. <laughs> and he took it off and it kind of, it's like I worked with him uh, maybe five years ago and he just said, you know, it, thank you for the work you do for young people. And I was dumbfounded because I, I wouldn't have thought he remembered me. Ooh. I mean, I still remembered him. Um, but it was, it's, yeah, you're right. Those, it could be years later or you just never hear it or yeah, you plant right. the seed and someone else sees it grow. Yeah. Or, or someone will say to you, Amanda, you said this. And I think, gosh, I don't ever remember saying that, but you know, it, but it really resonated or whatever. And yeah. they're those little beautiful moments that you get sometimes if you're lucky. <laughs> Where you um, say something so deeply profound that you don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then we think, oh yeah, you know, well, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, but clearly that is having a really huge impact. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, yeah, it's just, it's such a, just such a beautiful career. I mean, I got to, I got invited to, um, a support group 10 years after it had started and I wasn't even in that role anymore. I, was, I had a new newborn baby. I was at home and I got this letter in the mail saying, um, our Mildura support group is celebrating 10 years. Amanda, could you come and be our guest of honour? And so off I went on the little Rex flight with my little baby. <laughs> we went up to the tour and it was so amazing to see all these people who hadn't seen for 10 years. You had, I had a lot of contact with when we were starting that group because it was a really grassroots kind of movement and just to, um, to do that and to spend time with them. And then we had this sort of this um, fundraising auction that night mm -hmm. and a few other things. And it was just so beautiful and everyone's holding my baby. And just to experience all of these things together with the community was just very rewarding. 
And I think that's the stuff that you don't always get told in the beginning. Mm. Um, but they're the, the amazing rewards, which um, aren't monetary, that social work, you're not doing it for the money because the money's not always there. Um, I think we do it for that stuff, that, mm. that feeling that you're helping um, someone else in some small way. That's really lovely. So just to wrap up, I have a couple of quick questions about who you are as a person that I want to okay. fire at you, <laughs> especially during COVID. These might have some interesting things. So really quick. Are you sure? <laughs> I don't know about my outlook at the moment. Nah, really quick. All right. So what's the most recent book you've read? Uh, book. Well, I listen to a lot of um, podcasts because I've got kids and I can put them in my earphones and do it while I'm doing the dishes and things like that. So probably it was Brene Brown's um, one of Brene Brown's series ones that was the last one I read. She's an amazing American social worker. Talks about she sure is. and yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, last TV show you binge watched? It was Outlander with my husband. We've been watching a lot of that. One dish you cook well? Um, I'd probably say I do a lot of spaghetti bolognese because my kids love it, and and I'm, and I'm Italian, so you know. There's a stereotype. <laughs> uh, favorite thing to do on a day off? Oh, go for a bike ride. And yeah. what's your backup career? So, what did you want to be when you were a kid? <laughs> An actor. <laughs> Although now I'd probably say photography. If I had to, if I couldn't do social work, I'd probably do photography or something creative. And is there a quote or mantra that resonates with you? Um. A quote or mantra, I think, um, just to try to be your best self or the best version of you that you can be. That's one that I often come back to when I'm feeling like I'm not being the best version of myself. That's lovely. Thanks so much, Amanda. Thank you, Marie. It's lovely to talk to you all and, and good luck to everyone with your future careers and, and, and those that are sort of starting out and, and wherever you're up to. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.